Sister Whiskey Society podcast, and Tim and Michael here. And uh, we love to talk about whiskey and, and educate people on, on what they like and, and why they like it. And, and as we were thinking about guests, we couldn't think of anyone better than a whiskey sommelier. What is the role of a, a whiskey sommelier? How does someone become a whiskey sommelier? And, and, and what was your passion? Where did it awaken from? And, and why did you choose to start going down this path? So to answer that question, you know, I feel the role of a whiskey sommelier is education and pairing. You know, just like a regular wine sommelier. Uh, and for those who don't know, sommelier translates literally to wine steward or wine butler, basically. So mm-hmm. our our perception of butler nowadays is, you know, Jeeves or Alfred or even like a lurch of you rang <laughs> waiting on you hand and foot. But my understanding, at least back when, butler wasn't so much of a servant as it was, you know, kind of the head of household. They ran things for you and they were in charge of things in your absence. And they were kind of like, you know, your right hand and, you know most people back then would have to be rich to even hire a butler. They would probably have a nice wine selection, and, you know, that's what the butler would do. They would pair the wine with the meal. Say they're having a rack of lamb, what wine would you choose? You know, that's not a me question. That's a, that's a wine sommelier question. You said, I'm having this rack of lamb. I want something to go with it. I would recommend something smoky, but not overly smoky. Something, you know, with a delicate balance of smoke, maybe a little 21 to go along with that rack of lamb. Because you're going to get that beautiful fruit and smoke that wafts across the palate with a Glendronic 21. Or if you want to, go with something purely Isla, like a Lagavulin, which will just be a peat bomb right away. It would pair nicely with that red meat. How would you change that pairing if I had some mint jelly? Mint jelly. Ooh. I'd go with the space side. Okay. Those notes on the space side are a lot more mellow, a lot more caramel, a lot more like, you know, a little more oaky, a little more char. Also, you get a lot more of that malt and fruit. A lot more cherry, mango, maybe a little bit of guava and pineapple, you could say. Mm-hmm. Well, the question I have for you are, what are some simple basic pairings? Give us one or two examples that a listener of ours can take if they wanted to, after listening to this podcast, decided they want to go down to go to the grocery store and they want to serve up something for dinner. What would be a, a simple pairing that you would recommend that they could try that they would enjoy? Medium rare steak with a log of and 12. Okay. Why is that? I got back from my sommelier course last year, and I went to Pacific Dining Car because they were doing this deal for, like, a free baseball stick or whatever. And I'm like, cool, I'll go before this event that I was supposed to go to, which was a Bourbon Heritage Month event, which ended up getting canceled, unfortunately. Um, so I went over to Pacific Dining Car, and I sat down, and I got my steak, and I looked over the menu, and there's a Lagavulin 12 on the menu. I'm like, you know what? Sounds delicious. Let's do it. So I ordered a Lagavulin 12, and that smoky peatiness, and fruitiness and just, you know, brininess. That's one of the beauties of like a Lagavulin, I find, is that it's kind of briny and maritimey. Mm-hmm. Paired with that steak was just phenomenal. Hmm. Uh, and how was so medium rare steak? Was there any sauces on the steak? What was the steak served nope. with? Um, just okay. a steak. I would not go past medium personally. So just pairing a steak with that, you know, briny, maritimey, peaty, smoky malt that's got, that's still malt scotch whiskey. I mean, I think maybe a Benriac, like, you know, Ariositas, the tenure. Maybe that also is really unique. It doesn't have that same maritime quality, but it's got a beautiful, you know, just such a balanced peat in it, I think, for the Curiositas. And then I would also say, you know, some Japanese whiskey, I think. Yes, yes. We we did a, a sushi pairing whiskey dinner late last year, and it was just absolutely fantastic. 
And it's I'm lot- sure it was, but I'm not talking about sushi. Okay. I'm talking about, you know, salmon or halibut or cod or, okay. you know, swordfish or yellowtail mm. paired with a bourbon okay. or with some Japanese whiskey. I, I think the oaky, uh, corny notes of the bourbon, the caramel of the bourbon would pair really well with it. Or mm-hmm. the delicate balance of the fruity, you know, subtle, very mellow Japanese whiskeys would also go really well. And the whole kind of whiskey and pairing world, I think, is still relatively new. You know, most of us are, are, are very familiar with going to wine dinners where you've got, you know, the, the multiple courses paired with wine. But, you know, a lot of us have not experienced that those whiskey dinners. So are, are you familiar of anyone doing whiskey-type dinners, or have you been to any, or – Absolutely. For people in the Southern California area, my friend Valerie, actually, who runs the restaurant Steak and Whiskey in Newport, is doing a Woodford Reserve dinner coming up, actually, in a couple of days. So if you're in that area, go check it out. Um, As well as those of us at Double Barrel and Saddle Peak will be doing them again soon as well. Many of your listeners will probably be familiar with Seven Grand. And if they are, they probably know Jeffrey Baker, who was the spirit guide at Double Barrel before I came along. Mm-hmm. And he was doing whiskey dinners for several years. Oh, sorry, not several years, for several months, for about a year. He was doing whiskey mm-hmm. dinners at Double Barrel in Calabasas. You know, I, I think as you're talking about just, right, the kind of evolution of, of sommeliers out there, right, a, a lot of it did become, you know, or started with the, the wine stewards, right? It's the idea of what do we pair, how do we impart this knowledge? Because the world of wine is just exactly. so vast. and It I, is, I think it's, and it's probably just as vast, if not more vast, than the world of whiskey. Yeah, and, and so as the, the whiskey world has started to expand, I, I think there's become a, a, a very much a need for sommeliers like you out there to help educate us and help guide us towards what's going to go well with the meal. And I know traditionally so, you find – that's actually a, a transition of- for what I want to talk about. Tim, I'm going to cut you off there if you don't mind. Yeah. Back to what you were saying, the role of a, of a whiskey sommelier, there's about 83 of us, by the way, worldwide. Only about 83, give or mm-hmm. take like one or two, you know? Mm-hmm. We've got sommeliers in Canada. We've got them as far as Seoul, Korea, and Sydney, Australia. And I find that a lot of my fellow sommeliers prefer to focus on consumer taste and consumer education. That's phenomenal. You know, you need those people out there educating the consumers so that they understand the differences between Ben Riek and Ben Romick. Or, you know, they don't know what an Isla Scotch is versus an Orkney Scotch. Or, oh, you know, why is bourbon only made in Kentucky? You know, you need someone to educate that besides just the people who work for the brands. Don't get me wrong. I have many friends who work for brands, but their interest is for their brand. A sommelier is an independent party. What brought you into becoming a sommelier? So that is part of a longer story. And let's start with the fact that most people who I know who are interested in whiskey as I am are not necessarily significantly older or older than I am. I'm 26. Uh, so, you know, I'm basically a baby compared to everyone else in the whiskey business. I'm good with that. You know, I like that. It adds a little bit of a edge, a little bit of like, oh, that's neat. How did that happen? So as for how I became a sommelier, let's go back to my 21st birthday. I was 21. I was in Anaheim for a gaming convention. I had never had a drink. I just didn't want to. I didn't have an interest in it. You know, my dad was very liberal, very loose. He's like, hey, you know, if you want to try alcohol, you can try it at home with me, and I'll get you something good to try. Get you something like, you know, classy and quality to try, not like, you know, Manischewitz. <laughs> mm. 
So having that option my entire life, I just never cared. I didn't really need that rebellious phase of, oh, I'm going to break up my parents' liquor cabinet and drink all their scotch and get drunk. Right. I just didn't care. So we were trying desperately to find somewhere that carried Harvey's Bristol cream. My grandfather loved to drink that. And, you know, we couldn't find anywhere. Eventually, we just settled on Wood Ranch Barbecue down in Anaheim. We go there. We tell them, hey, you know, it's my 21st birthday. I've never had a drink. What would you recommend? Here's where it gets amusing. They brought me out a beer. They brought me out a beer. I think it was a Firestone Walker IPA or something like that. It was way too bitter. I did (laughs) not like it. I couldn't drink it. It took it back. They were really nice about this. Next is like, okay, well, maybe try a margarita. You know, it's a little sweeter, a little like, you know, fruitier. How much lime? (laughs) A lot of things to complain about. Not the alcohol, the tequila. The lime was too strong. Finally, the third drink I tried, I could enjoy. And this is where it gets really, really funny. A raspberry ranch lemonade is what they called it. Cruising raspberry rum, fresh raspberries, and raspberry lemonade with a sugar rim. It was the sweetest, fruitiest, girliest drink you could think of, and I loved it. From there, you know, I started to explore beer a little bit. Uh, that next day, though, the day after my birthday, my cousin gave me a bottle of Crown Royal. And I opened it a couple of days later, and I started to try it. At first, you know, it was really hard to drink, and I could only take a small like, little, like, nip. Not even like a sip, like a nip. It kind of burned. I had to power through that burn, and then I could enjoy the flavor after that burn went away. So slowly started to drink Crown Royal and get used to it. Tried it with Sprite, tried it with lemonade, and moved on to Jack and Coke and beer. And then I went to a event with Johnny Walker. And, you know, that was after I started to drink Johnny Walker and started to experience whiskey a little more. I fell in love with Black Label and Double Black. And then I went to a Raised McCallum event. And that kind of set me down the path of whiskey of, this is really tasty. I haven't had this McCallum stuff a lot before. I've heard of it. I haven't had it. This sound, This is really tasty. Let's see what else is out there, kind of. And from there, you know, I just started exploring and finding whatever I could. I mean, just a couple hours ago, I picked up a 21-year-old Ben Nevis. Never had Ben Nevis, but a 21-year-old Scotch for 100 bucks. How can I pass that deal up? What was it that you were starting to enjoy in terms of those those Johnny Walkers? What, what were some of the flavors or some of the experiences? What was it that that started attracting you to to those drinks? So it's the same thing that I find in anything that I find interest in. Get geeky about it. I learn about the process. I learn about the different styles. I try and pick apart the flavors. I did that with beer. I started to get into craft beer for a while. You know, I I knew all about this type of beer and that type of beer. I don't really remember a lot right now because I focused my memory on whiskey. Um, but it was the fact that, you know, everyone's palate is unique and all the different flavors and all the different styles of scotch that there are. Not even talking bourbon, just talking scotch right now. Just all the different styles of whiskey there were. What caught my attention, and I started to geek out about it and get to learn about the different whiskeys. One of the roles of a sommelier is to deal with people, and uh, some of us are not exactly the most... uh, enigmatic person when it comes to dealing with people and how has that role uh how has that role worked with you or affected you as a sommelier taking this knowledge of different whiskeys and scotches and have translated into english and human it's really difficult sometimes honestly (laughs) not because of the guest but because i don't want to be redundant you know i can talk to you i can give you i told this to a guest the other day you know Everyone heard of a cold reading, you know, fake psychics. I can do a cold read on a whiskey. I can just give you a very generic, you know, flavor description of a bottle of whiskey. I prefer not to do that kind of thing. I prefer to, you know, actually give proper notes. When I'm doing a tasting, I'm tasting for myself. I try and work past, you know, the butterscotch, the toffee, the oak, the caramel, 
the white pepper. I try and find the unique stuff like the bubble gums, the apples, the honey, the pencil shavings from my eighth grade classroom in Florida <laughs> or whatever it may be, you know? And that pencil shaving from an eighth grade classroom in Florida might not make sense to you, but it makes perfect sense to me because I know exactly, oh, this is what that smells like or that's what that tastes like. Right. That then becomes another problem of, you know, how do I translate that for the guest, of course. And through your process of, of self-discovery on discovering what it is that you like and what you don't like and, and narrowing it down and deciding that uh, whiskeys and scotches were your thing, uh, how did you get your certification to become a, a whiskey sommelier? That's a phenomenal question. I'm glad you brought that back up. So there's a program in Austin, Texas, of all places. It's the Whiskey Marketing School and Sommelier Program. And I went last September, I believe it was. And this was after I'd been doing my own studying for a couple of years. I'd been writing a spirits blog, mostly whiskey-focused, for a while before that. Um, and then I ended up meeting up with a gentleman named by the name of Tom Fisher. Mm-hmm. And he's the owner and founder of bourbonblog.com. I ended up working with him for a while as his L.A. correspondent for Bourbon Blog. And when he was in town, you know, I would help him out. I'd help him run his events. I helped share, promote. And yeah. eventually it worked out that he was able to submit my name to go to the school. It's just basically compound. It's probably a several-acre property. And they've got a giant tower in the center of the property. And that is where they shoot. The Whiskey Vault show, actually, on YouTube. And they're, and they're very much a non-traditional business school in the, in the sense that they want to teach you useful knowledge, not just book knowledge, correct? 100%. That's one of the really neat things about the regular programming as well. They don't just do, you know, the Somalia program. They're actually like, you know, a continuing education, if you could say elective kind of school. Exactly. It's just about the education for you know, non-traditional type channels that you, you can't show up at your, your local college and take. Exactly. You know, it's all a nonprofit too, which is phenomenal. They're not in this for the money. You know, they could easily charge a lot more for the school when you think about it. It's $4,000 for the first level for the Whiskey Sommelier course. And that includes the giant flavor flavor medallion that you get when you graduate, all the whiskey you're going to drink, and two catered lunches and dinners, as well as room and board. It's a pretty incredible value, if you ask me. I think I, it's something I, I would consider doing one of these days when I when I get a little more free time. That's the beauty of it. You don't need a lot of free time. It's done mm-hmm. in a masterclass style format where it's done over two days. You show up, you fly in the night before, you come, you stay there on campus. That's to start at 8 a.m. the next morning, go mm-hmm. to about 5 p.m. with a break for lunch, then you're free that night. You're usually hanging out with other students. And then you do it again the next day from 8 a.m. to about, you know, 1 or 2 p.m. is when classes. You have your exam. And so far, as far as I know, there's not been one failure in the entire program, at least for level one, for 83 students. That's incredible. So so good pass rate, even with the booze involved. Well, the thing is with the booze is you may be drinking a lot, but you're not drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. You have per day about probably six flights, three in the morning and three in the afternoon. Each flight is three whiskeys. So you're just sampling enough to understand it. It's deductive tasting and training your palate to figure out, you know, what's the Irish, what's the Scotch, what's the bourbon, what's mm-hmm. the Japanese? Oh, which region of Scotland is this from? Why is it that region? It's deductive tasting, and that's really a great training program. Well, you, you talk about kind of the deductive 
tasting and you know being able to to train ourselves as you're getting people coming in and you're you're educating people at the the double barrel or they're asking what what are some ways that they can start you know just simple training right without having to to take a weekend off or you know attending massive courses what kind of path would you set someone on to just start accumulating basic knowledge of whiskeys i would say you know figure out what you like and what you don't like and then slowly start moving out of your comfort zone. So if you know you like things a little sweeter, I would say avoid anything Isla and anything peated at first, of course. Avoid anything Orkney as well. But slowly but surely move from, you know, like a Speyside or a Highland or a, even Campbelltown more towards that Isla. And so, so we should really start with, with what we know, what we're comfortable with, and get familiar with those type items. And then as we, we continue to get familiar with what we like, then it's a good idea to start experimenting and move out then. And just push past it. Don't stay in your comfort zone for too long. Sam, hey, thank you so much for hopping on the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast, sharing your knowledge with us, and just really helping us educate our listeners because that's what makes it fun. And I think you really hit on it at the the beginning as you were talking about your love of whiskey is it was something you were able to to jump into and do a deep 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 dive into because the world of whiskey is complex there's a craftsmanship to it there's there's a stewardship that takes place with the the crafting of these beverages and so thank you so much for just like i said sharing your knowledge and educating us my pleasure 